0: I We've heard of hard power, soft power and smart power. But what is this new sharp power? What are the major changes in the global order that we should be watching out for? How can middle powers that are neither here nor there cope? All this and more on this episode of the Pragati Podcast. Hi. You're listening to the Pragati podcast, and I'm your host Hamsni Hariharan. Every week on the show, my co-host Pavan Srinath and I get together to discuss policy, economics, and international affairs. All foreign relations debates seem to be about the changing dynamics in the world, the rise of China, the fall of the United States, and figuring out India's place in this big, mad world. Last month, I was at the Raisina Dialogues, and I managed to get some clarity from Rory Medcuff. Rory Metcalf directs the International Security Programme at the Lowy Institute in Sydney and is also a non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Institution. He is a former diplomat, intelligence analyst, and journalist whose work covers a wide spectrum of strategic and geopolitical issues in Indo-Pacific Asia. The main question that I had was this. We know that power is currency in global affairs, but how do we reconcile with the changes in the order and power shifts.
1: Well, some of the changes are very obvious and the most fundamental ones of course relate to uh, the changes not only in economic power and military power, the changes in actual weight, but also the changes in the ways that nations are using their weight. So the, the confidence uh, the assertiveness, the expansion of nations' interests into new areas and I'm thinking especially uh, China into the Indian Ocean, South Asia and Africa, India's expanding interests regionally and and in some parts of the globe, but there's also the dimensions of power and interest that are entirely new. So, for example, the uh, the growth of uh, influence through cyberspace, the uh, the new permeability of states, so that states often tend to intrude into the internal affairs of one another, sometimes quite deliberately, as I, think, as I think we've seen Russia and, uh, and China do in particular. So it's, a, it's not only a new chessboard, but it's now a very three-dimensional chessboard of interstate competition globally and in the Indo-Pacific. And that places uh, interesting pressures and expectations on a whole range of countries.
0: And do you think these are new theatres or areas in which this contestation, or have they always existed?
1: Well, economic and strategic competition, or economic and security—that is, power-related competition—have always been there. But I do think that the um, the game is changing. The uh, the soft power competition is also now extending into what some analysts, uh, including me, have called sharp power competition, in other words, intrusiveness into the affairs of other countries, uh, such as. Uh, some Chinese activities in Australia or, or Russian activities in the United States. Uh, and there's also that domain of competition whereby through disruptive technology, particularly uh, cyber space, cyber uh, influence, cyber espionage and so forth, um, countries can exert disproportionate influence. These are asymmetric tools of, uh, of, of influence. And so countries, I think, increasingly need to look at themselves not only in the crude, hard power terms of the size of their economies or the size of their militaries, but also the ways in which they can deploy their capabilities, the ways in which they can use uh, their leverage more creatively, and importantly, the ways in which they can develop new alignments, new structures, new partnerships to deal with all of the uncertainty that I've just described. Fair
0: enough... Just for people who are not familiar with international relations, people even know that there's hard power and soft power and smart power, but what Mm. is sharp power? How do you define it? So that's
1: a a new concept in a sense. I I wrote about it in an article uh, in the middle of 2017 when I was describing Chinese influence in Australia and the efforts to, uh, as many people saw it, to subvert uh, Australian policymaking, uh, whether it was through donations or propaganda, or the mobilisation of uh, parts of the Chinese diaspora in Australia. And that relates, in a way, to the activity Russia has undertaken or alleged to have undertaken in the United States with its interference in the US election in 2016. So sharp power is about intruding into the internal affairs of other countries, Uh, and so it's got that sharp sort of penetrative quality to it. Um, it's not about the use of force and it's not about soft power, which is the use of persuasion and attraction. It's something else. And importantly, you don't have to be a very powerful country to attempt or succeed with sharp power. You need to instead to have a kind of a, a ruthlessness and a disregard for the, uh, the, the sovereignty of, of, of other countries. And in fact, democracies find it particularly hard to protect themselves against sharp power because sharp power involves authoritarian states exploiting the openness and vulnerability of democracies. And that's something I think that India is going to have to be mindful of mm. in the future, especially as India goes into uh, an election year mm. um, or an election year next year, because it's quite conceivable that external powers will t- attempt to influence the democratic process here, as has happened in the United States and has could, as could potentially happen in uh, in Australia.
0: Uh- That is an interesting point, I think, that you've raised. I don't think anyone's raised that point before. But uh, how do democracies then respond to uh, sharp power? How should Australia respond to uh, smart
1: power? So Australia is responding to sharp power really quite decisively. Uh, It's quite striking that in the past year, uh, the Australian political debate has almost entirely shifted on this issue. We now take foreign interference very seriously, whether it's from China or from any other country. Uh, We are looking to safeguard our sovereignty as a middle power. And this doesn't mean that we have to be militarily particularly strong. Instead, it means that we have to have uh, legislation. So Australia is introducing very strong transparency legislation to require uh, foreign agents, those who are acting on behalf of foreign governments, to register, um, to declare that they are foreign agents Uh, and if they don't do that and they're caught undertaking foreign influence operations that will be considered a criminal activity with with criminal penalties. We're also banning foreign donations to Australian political parties a a major area of vulnerability that we had. There's more that we can do uh, and that's about identifying propaganda when we see it. So for example the use of uh, social media or Chinese language media in Australia that's influenced by the Chinese Communist Party to, uh, to exert influence on the Australian political debate. And of course, in time, this could apply to other countries as well. We're not just picking on China here. Um, this is about uh, democracies protecting themselves, inoculating themselves from corrupt, coercive or collusive, uh, or, or indeed uh, covert foreign influence. And that's a lesson for everyone. So I think Australia is being looked at at the moment as something of a model in this regard by Germany, by Canada, by the United States, by France. uh, And I hope the Australian experience will resonate in India as well.
0: Yes, it's important to strengthen your domestic institutions. But this got me wondering, how much backlash would such policies get? The Global Times reportedly conducted a poll and called Australia the most unfriendly country to China in 2017. Also, how would this affect diaspora relations? How would it reflect on multiculturalism in democracies like Australia and India?
1: So that's a good question, and it's a fair point. And one of the obvious criticisms that's made of Australia's approach to foreign interference is to say that we are being paranoid, that we're introducing a kind of new McCarthyism, a sort of a Cold War uh, witch hunt uh, against against communists. Uh And the way to address that is to emphasise that this is not a discriminatory policy. This is a policy that is about all forms of foreign influence, where that influence is covert, where it's covert, corrupt, coercive, collusive. But there's nothing wrong with transparent foreign influence. Uh, And if foreign agents are willing to declare themselves, whether they're Australian nationals or foreign nationals, um, of course, we're happy to hear their points of view. Nobody is being censored from the political debate in Australia. We just want to know... Uh, that there's truth in advertising. We want to know where the information is coming from, where the uh, propaganda is coming from and who's behind it. And, of course, that is something that the United States could have benefited from when there was so much, um, I guess, false information being put around on social media during the uh, the election campaign there. The other point I'd make is that the Australian government has been pains to emphasise that this is not an uh, anti-Chinese initiative. It is, in some ways, an anti-Chinese Communist Party initiative, but that's different. That's about a big foreign organisation trying to infiltrate and influence the state and not the people, yes. Exactly. And, in fact, uh, what's important to note is that many of the strongest critics of Chinese Communist Party and Chinese state-influenced inside Australia are ethnically Chinese. They mm. are Chinese Australians or Australians of Chinese origin, many of whom have lived in Australia for many years precisely because, of, because Australia is a kind of democratic sanctuary uh, from uh, the, uh, you know, the, the oppression, if you like, of the, of the party. And that's an important point because it emphasises that this is about protecting the rights of Chinese Australians rather than discriminating against them.
0: Fair enough. But is sharp power confined to something that only authoritarian states project into other states? Does this excuse democracies and the way they interfere with internal affairs of other sovereign states
1: sure, sure and you know if you go back into the history of the Cold War it's not hard to find instances of uh, the United States or or its allies interfering in other countries' internal affairs um, and that's something that um, that we all, we all want to move away from but I think in the in the current era it is uh, something where authori- authoritarian states have an advantage and where relatively weak authoritarian states, and I actually mean Russia here, not China, but a relatively weak state, a state that is actually powerful but a declining power, uh, have an asymmetric advantage. You, know, you can achieve an incredible amount of disruption for you know, $100,000 using Facebook uh, inside a democracy. Democracies tend to be at a disadvantage precisely because through law they tend to be much more transparent even about their intelligence operations. Uh, And so, for the time being at least, sharp power favours authoritarian states and it's the democracies uh, that are on the defensive.
0: Fair enough. Uh, When we talk about Asia, uh, one of the things that we're saying is that we're moving from what was a unipolar world to a multipolar world uh, and a lot of the states in this region, uh, whether you call it the Indo-Pacific or not, uh, India, Australia, Indonesia, they're all middle powers. Hmm. So how should middle powers contend with the change in power dynamics that's
1: going on? Well, this connects to the, the start of your interview where you asked about what are the changing power dynamics, and I'm really glad you, you made that, uh, that progression because precisely because power is being exerted in different ways in the region, not only militarily but also through economic leverage, through uh, China's infrastructure efforts, through sharp power, through cyberspace and so on. That's actually a reminder that uh, sometimes being a big power is not a huge advantage, that small and middle powers have advantages too. In some ways, uh, small can be powerful Mm. too, especially if those smaller countries are resilient, uh, cohesive, and find ways of partnering with other smaller and medium countries. And so what we're seeing in the Indo-Pacific region is precisely that point that this is a multipolar region. Multipolarity actually suits the small and middle powers. And countries like Australia that, uh, I guess, have traditionally been very aligned with the United States and have wanted to see US dominance, if you like, of the region are beginning to recognise that uh, the way things are going, we probably benefit from a multipolar region where it's all about principles, it's about respecting the rules, and it's about respecting the rights and interests of small and middle powers, not only in a normative sense, but but all through through the fact that small and middle powers can band together to ensure that those interests are protected. Now, uh, the term middle power can be controversial because while Australia or Canada uh, or perhaps Vietnam are, I think, by definition, middle powers... India and Japan, which are two countries I would absolutely emphasise in this construct, India and Japan are, by some measures, major powers, right? major economies, in India's case, possessing nuclear weapons as well. But they are players in the middle. They are in between the US-China rivalry, and they're also in between in between the possibility of a US-China, um, I guess, deal to manage the region, I don't think. G2 idea is likely incidentally so one of the exciting developments that we've seen in the past couple of years is a great momentum of the players in the middle getting together discovering each other as strategic partners and that's a journey that we've just started and in fact I think Australia and India are unusually well positioned to be at the core of some of these middle power coalitions that we're seeing and I have Indian colleagues such as Rajamohan who very much of that view as well.
0: Uh, so this would naturally bring me to the Quad. What are your opinions on the Quad? Because it has failed once before, mm. and now we see a resurgence sort of rebirth effect.
1: So the, the, the Quadrilateral Dialogue of, uh, of India, Japan, the United States and Australia is one of these so-called minilateral coalitions, not multilateral in, in an inclusive sense but not bilateral either, that is springing up, I think, in response to the uncertainties uh, and the the risks around China's rise in particular and also as a way of reinforcing that we will not have our selection of strategic or dialogue partners vetoed by another country. We will not allow China, for example, to veto who we talk to. And we have plenty of things to talk to these countries about, whether it's uh, transnational issues like disaster relief or whether it's frankly... The, the risks in the strategic order uh, and the need for us to coordinate our policies better together. So it's timely that the quadrilateral dialogue has been revived. I think it's been revived much more effectively uh, than in its original short life. Uh, I think there is now a sustained political will behind it, but also a desire to move slowly and gradually and not to, uh, I guess... Be, be over-ambitious, not to leap right in there with quadrilateral exercises or a leaders' summit or anything like that, but to proceed professionally with officials getting together, sharing assessments, sharing presumably some pretty confidential judgments about the region, um, whether it's about China or terrorism or, or, or other issues, and then let's test the waters. Let's see where we can go from there. Uh, so that's, that's what I would say about the quad, but I'd also emphasise that the quad is not the only game in town and that some of the other exciting dialogues we're seeing evolve are, for example, trilaterals that don't necessarily include the United States. So the Australia, India, Japan trilateral has met, I think, four times in the past few years. And you can assume quite safely that in a room like that, we don't just talk about China, we talk about the United States as well. We talk about all of the uncertainties in the regional order. And we're discovering uh, a lot of convergent interest and like-mindedness with these other players in the middle, and that's a good thing. Oh,
0: that is good. But uh, just a last question: What do you think right now with middle powers? Are the main challenges that's facing them, and what do you think they should be
1: doing? So, one of the main challenges is simply about about weight. I mean, we are middle powers because we are not the most powerful, and so there are limits to what we can do without the United States. Uh, One of the challenges I think we face, uh, the middle players, Australia, Japan, India, perhaps Indonesia, perhaps others, perhaps even countries like France, which are, uh, in a sense, Indian Ocean countries, even if they are primarily European countries. One of the things that we all face in common is that need to present a united message to the United States to help stabilise and moderate the behaviour of the U.S., uh, the U.S. presidency, to ensure that there is consistency and staying power as the U.S. is engaged in Asia. At the same time, we have to send credible messages to China about the need to preserve a rules-based order, about the fact that might is not right, and that, uh, that China really needs to, uh, uh, as it expands its interest in the Indo-Pacific region, to accept that it's entering a region that is already very busy, very populated with a lot of other interests that it has to, has to respect. So, that's, so there's that messaging challenge, but there's also the challenge of building up capabilities. I think the middle powers do have substantial capabilities when they're put together, whether it's naval capabilities or uh, in, in other areas, but which are generally we're not used to playing together. We're not used to coordinating or trusting each other. So we also need to uh, really build up the pace of our, uh, our various bilateral and trilateral uh, exercises Uh, perhaps joint training, perhaps eventually even sharing technology. It's a very demanding agenda, but I think the political will is now there. Uh, And so we're on to something that is is timely and important.
0: Only time will tell how the quadrilateral will shape up. But that's it for this episode of the Pragati Podcast. If you're interested in knowing more about smart power, the quadrilateral or middle powers, you can check out the episode page of the podcast on thinkpragati.com. If you heard anything on the show that you agree or disagree with or unclear about, then you can mail us at podcast at thinkpragati.com. You can also find Pavan and me on Twitter as at Zeus is dead and at Hamsini H. You can listen to the Pragati podcast on the IVM podcast app or wherever it is that you get your podcast from. We'll be back next Thursday.
1: There she stands, a podcast addict. Outside the bank, having traveled several miles to get in with other poor souls like her. The journey, though daunting for this youngling, will have some comfort because she has downloaded her favorite podcast. You can see more of her species on ivmpodcasts.com your one-stop destination where you can check out the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.